Hi, everyone. Welcome to Yachad Podcast, and I am Yehuda Gian. Hi, guys. Eitan Davidov over here. Welcome to episode number two. And today we have a very special guest. Please welcome Rabbi. Rabbi yes. Morazov. And thank you for joining us today, Rabbi. As those of you who watched the last time's podcast, we're just me as the, from, from birth, a student in Eitan, as our Balachuva with a different rabbi every week, just to talk about small pieces of Torah and tell our stories together. It's very emunah, bitachon focused, and just personal growth oriented. So this episode is sponsored uh, for speedy recovery of Benjamin Menachem Ben Yael. You should have a speedy recovery have a good life, a long life, everything you will need and a lot of satisfaction to his parents. Amen. Amen. So Rabbi, very nice having you on the podcast today. Do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself, a little bit of your background, your history? Where did you grow up? Where do you align religiously? Just so we have a little bit of understanding of you. Yes, I actually come from Paris, France, for those who know. Paris, France is a very big city with a lot of Jews that live there. Actually, today, close to 150 Chabad uh, emissaries with Chabad centers and a lot of Judaism happening there. Just in Paris? Just in Paris, yes. Yes, Paris and the suburbs of it. Yeah, so it's really, really big and a lot of things happening there. So I grew up there close to 20 years. Went to what we called a shader there, a Jewish school, to learn there for all my, when I was a child till the age of 13. Then I moved to a yeshiva, big, very known yeshiva called in the town of Brunois, not far from Paris. I was there for six years, and this is where I started studying to learn Torah, obviously, but also to become a rabbi there. And then at the age of 20, I went for a year to a yeshiva called Seir Ashlochem. It's a yeshiva made for kids that are growing in towns with their parents that are Chabad emissaries. This yeshiva is located in Tzfat. So I was their teacher, actually opened their class for French boys. I was teaching for the whole entire day. Very amazing experience. And then for the year, following year, I was in a yeshiva in Detroit, Michigan. It's a Chabad yeshiva also with Chabad boys growing, also being formed kind of being rabbis and Chabad emissaries all around the world. Uh, I was also their teacher for a year. And then I went to learn for a year and a half but next to the Lubavitcher Rebbe's OL, resting place in Queens. So yeah, this is a pretty much my background. And uh, thank God we had a lot of this enjoyment, kind of success in my, in my learning. It was uh, really enjoyable. Got married to later to my wife. Um, thank you. This was already the next week. Actually, uh, in two weeks, actually, is going to be my third marriage anniversary. So for the first year, actually, by Chabad, by, in the Chabad community, is very known the, the idea of staying in Kolel, learning for a year in Brooklyn, Crown Heights. I learned there in Kolel for a year. This is where I started later after a year, looking to be a Chabad emissary, to be a Shaliyah. Uh, this was always the wish with and me, that we should be Chabad emissaries from when we met first date. Always, that's, this was always our, first, always our wish. We were educated on it, being that me, I grew up as Chabad, with the parents of Chabad emissaries in, in Paris, France, and my grandparents from my mother's side also, and my wife, the same, her parents of Chabad, or, or Chabad and Valley Stream, or Chabad and Valley Stream. So we always grew up like this, and then when we were looking for to be Chabad emissaries, so one of the first options that came up was to come help my in-laws develop their mission in Valley Stream. So this is basically what we're doing. Now it's already two years. Me and my wife, we are working there in Valley Stream. It's really amazing. 
we're having uh, a lot of things going on between me and my wife directing together with her mother, the preschool, uh, go to, to visit people in offices, tours, to learn with them, put on to fill in really, really a lot of Jews that work in the area in Valley Stream, Limbrook. It's really amazing. A lot of things happening. And uh, classes for youth at the age from the age of 20, 21 till 25 around, two, three classes a week. It's really amazing to learn with such age of boys. So seeing them grow. And then I have my bar mitzvah lessons, my bar mitzvah club that is growing, my teen club, where I've both together already around 18 to 20 boys. So oh, it's, uh, nice. yeah, yeah, it's really nice. It's really nice. So it's really growing. We're looking forward to really accomplish our goal. The Rebbe always said when he sent Chabad Emissaries and gives us the power today to continue. It's basically to transform the world and to prepare it to the finest, final goal of the world to bring the Shia. This is actually our goal and it's really enjoyable. Wonderful. Cool question. What was growing up in France like? Yehuda works right now for an organization called Andrew Hatred, and he helps combat anti-Semitism. I've heard quite a few things about Harris and the level of anti-Semitism. I was actually there a few years back, and I didn't feel comfortable at the time before even becoming religious wearing a Megan DeVito. What's it like there with the anti-Semitism? So let's put it this way. So yes, I would say it's maybe a little bit worse than year regarding this point, but still we always wore, and we are still working there as pro-Jews. Personally, pretty much never felt not comfortable to do it. Anti-Semitic attacks are not so crazy, meaning I never felt less secure there than in New York, really, personally. Listen, when you just trust in Hashem and you, and you see that everything is pretty much safe around you, you feel good. Like I never felt something bad, so not comfortable, the truth. My parents are still there. My whole family is there. I know we are working, continuing the job. It's really good. You even have public mineral lightings around, I think, if I'm not mistaken, around more than 100 per Hanukkah public mineral lighting in the street in the middle of Paris. And it's really nothing and ever happened. And the opposite, really, people really respect it and they love it. Okay. Thank you for sharing that, Rabbi. I was actually in Paris this past summer with my brother, who we oh, wow. my brother and my sister. We went nice. on a tour of different cities in Europe. I, I nice. did, we were at the Chabad by the Arc de Triomphe. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah we did Chabad there. So actually, yeah, I don't know if you remember his name, Rabbi Yona Fasky? Yes, I think that was him. Yes, yes. So yeah, he's actually doing it. I remember actually as a child, going because sometimes he brought my father down to give some classes. I remember as a child coming, joining my, my father during the vacation. To when he would come to launch and learn. I remember being his first Chabadas when he had still a very small tiny Chabadas on top of one of the buildings there. So I saw it growing. It's really a beautiful Chabadas there. So I wanted to ask you a question. In my life, I've only ever lived in from areas. Mm -hmm. So I've lived in New York, I've lived in LA, and I've lived in Miami. These are all pretty big from communities. What, how close-knit and how big is the from community of Paris? Okay, so that's a good question. So Really, in Paris, it's divided in a few areas. I would say like this. There are a couple of few areas that are really from, I would say, similar to, let's say, let's say Crown Heights for me, maybe close to 5,000. Meaning you have different areas that are very religious. I would say like this. We really like synagogues every few blocks. A lot of kosher restaurants, kosher stores. Are really good kosher restaurants? Very good. Like... Actually, the kosher restaurants are really good. Better than uh, five towns? Because I, I don't know how I feel about uh, five towns. <laughs> the, truth, the truth is, um, 
this year already you have to ask people that know better but apparently i say i i would say maybe even better <laughs> <laughs> but that's amazing and i'm not so much in rest into restaurants as like i was saying yeah, to it then so i don't know <laughs> but uh, apparently they say that's very good but i grew up in my Chabad center, where I was, uh, where my parents are Chabad. It's not really religious around. It's really like living in a place that you you feel a little bit uh, out yourself. Of place. Out of place, but you feel like yourself a little bit uh, being Jewish. You have to show the example, and people should look at you and take uh, the good image of who you are. Kiddush and what, Hashem. Exactly. That's exactly the mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem that you're practicing every day on a daily basis. I think it's time now to move into a little bit of learning. Rabbi, you mind reading for us this week's uh, Pasuk? Of course. So the Pasuk of this week that we're going to discuss, so it's a Pasuk in Parashat Bo, the first one actually. Let's read, just read it in Hebrew and try to translate it together. So Vayomer Hashem El Moshe. So Hashem told to Moshe Rabbeinu, so it's a Parashat that comes uh, the, uh, following the past two Parashiyot, past two Torah portions, where we are talking about the Jews being in Egypt and now preparing to actually be redeemed from Egypt. Very interesting to our portions. And this one is the happiest, I would say, after the following two to our portions where we were talking about slavery and really hard the moments for the Jewish people. And here we come. Hashem talks to Moshe and he tells him, Bo el pao, come into Pao. Actually, I was, uh, I was wondering, someone asked me the question, actually. Uh, why does he Bo? And sometimes we say, uh, left, go to Pao. Why is this? And they say, Bo, interesting. Someone asked me the question. I was looking for the answer. And the Bala to is a nice answer. Though I think you have even deeper answers, but let's give the basic one. The um, yeah, the chat. Let's put it like this. Like this. The Balatum says, Bo, uh, it's when he has to go to his palace. Lech is when he has to go to the Nile to meet Paolo there. Interesting. So Bo, it's come to his house and Lech has go to him when he's in, at the Nile. Interesting. Uh, because I made his heart, it is hard, hard to be very, very heavy, meaning in other words, that he's not going to agree. And the heart of his ministers, slaves, yeah. In order for me to, to set down, she says, shiti means, uh, it means a uh, seam to put. And my plagues, my signs in is on his heart. Yeah. So that's basically the idea. So this line is very interesting because at face value, it's like, okay, so what? Moshe Rabbeinu takes paro. Uh, no, Moshe, Kadosh uh, Baruch takes Paro and uh, he makes it hard, hard. And uh, he wants to show him all the signs. But I think if we look deeper from a perspective of, uh, you know, Emunah, Bitachon, God controlling everything, the question that comes to me is how could God take away Paro's free will by making his heart heavy and then punish him for it? Good. So I really like this question, actually. And it's a question that's very interesting. A lot of people ask in general. Oh, this wasn't the first storm? Uh, <laughs> I would not say so. But, but by, about, the, by the thousands of years and nobody, like I was hoping, like and, maybe something unique that I said, but I guess not. Nah, and, uh, actually, a lot of people ask it. And But I would say from the other end, to ask such a question, you need a little bit to, to learn and think about what you're saying. So it's it, meaning every question that you ask, even if uh, in general in life, when you are learning, when you, every question you ask, even if you find it in other mefaresh and other commentary, I would say, I would look at it the opposite. I'd say, wow, such a good question. Even this commentary asked the question. So it's a good way to look at it. Wow. Do you get it? You see, I ask a question that a uh, big, big rabbis asked before. I True. feel uh, not only big rabbis, a really big, I would say very like, Rashi, yeah. Ramban, so Rashi doesn't ask the question because 
Rashi, by the way, interesting to know that Rashi never asks questions that are too deep. Every, Rashi's point is always to explain the base, 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 base. Even a pshat, I would say, it's not a pshat that we just want to read and translate, yeah. right? Because the Lubavitch Rebbe used to give entire sikhos just based on one Rashi. Correct, correct. And actually, mentioning, you have a lot of people that started learning. I know personally someone that's not Chabad, he doesn't consider himself Chabad, but he lives in Paris and he comes from a very famous family, Sephardic family in Morocco. His name is, uh, his last name is Toledano. Very famous name for those that know a little bit Morocco. Yeah. Uh, and he uh, learned, studied the Rebbe's in Rashi, and he even uh, created, uh, wrote a book, and he came out by the wow. by Chaos. Chaos is a very famous, uh, the brand that all the Chabad books come to, and the book came out through them, and he wrote a book basically how to learn any Rashi according to the Rebbe's look, view on Rashi. Very interesting. So he gives every week a class. Very, very interesting. Yeah. So about the question, would you like an answer? Yeah. Oh. I think <laughs> like, I would like an answer, yes. Yeah. <laughs> So I think, uh, so let's give, first of all, let's, first of all, who's say, who asked the question. The, one of the ones that asked the question was the Rambam in Ilchot Shuvah. Ilchot Shuvah. Ilchot Shuvah is a very, uh, of the Rambam is a lot of very interesting things are written there about different things, not only about the Shuvah, not only about repentance. It's a lot of things, really, a lot of things are discussed there. And one of these is this question. The Rambam asked the question, he says, first of all, he says that the person has a, has a, he has the free will to do whatever he wants. Hashem created the person, especially the person with the, when I say the human being, only human being with the free will and not anyone will, not, every, not every, anyone else, any other creature, Rambam tells us that they're not created with free will. You could depend on it later if you want, but the Rambam tells us that a human being is created with free will. And the question is about power. So how does it work? Because we see that he doesn't have free will, apparently. So let's see. We'll go start by the answer of Rambam if you guys are interested, right? Okay. Okay. Yes. So the Rambam tells us that you have the, whatever Hashem decided. And then you have the people themselves. What does it mean? Very simple. The fact that Hashem decided, it means that he decided that Jews should be in Egypt and be slaves. Now, who is going to do it? Who is going to make them suffer? That's already up to each one of the Egyptians. Meaning, he told them, he told them, listen, you guys have to suffer. Someone has to make the truth suffer. Now, each one of the Egyptians has the choice to say, I am going to make them suffer or I'm going to let my friend do it. And the fact that each one of the Egyptians that made suffer the Jews decided that he is going to, so he should be punished. Got the answer? In other but words, Pavon particular, who had the ability to let them out or not. So it makes sense, I guess, for all of the other Egyptians. But the fact that Pavon was the one who really, he didn't have the choice whether to let them out or not. So, so, so let's put it this way. Meaning, according to the, the, what the Ram is trying to tell us, he's trying to tell us that the fact that Pavon, for example, decided that he's going to make suffer the Jews, it means he decided that he is going to take part of the decree. He had the free will to say, I'm not going to take. That's what the Rambam is trying to tell us. I think I also heard somewhere, I don't remember which of the Rish which of the Rishonim said this, but I also heard somewhere that there's a concept just in, in Jewish thought in general that wherever a person already wants to go, God helps him get there. And the basic concept here was that if you look at the wording at each of the 10 plagues, it doesn't always say that God made Pharaoh's heart heavier sometimes it just says that Pharaoh's heart became heavy 
I think and it said that for the earlier plagues. Yeah, exactly. The so earlier what, plagues, but then by the time the later plagues right. So came, what happens is, yeah. if you go to the early... So by the earlier plagues, Paul was doing it himself. He himself was being stubborn on purpose not to let the Jews out. So then we, we have this concept that, okay, so once Paul showed the desire to be stubborn, not to let the Jews out, and to make his heart heavy, God helped him with what his own desire was. Interesting. So instead of looking at it like taking away Paul's free will... God was actually helping Parol act on his own desire. And then, obviously, that desire was wrong. He should have let, he should have let Bnei Yisrael go. That's a, it helps the censor well. Because by the Ravad, that's one of the, one of the very big friends of the Rambam, but also he has a lot of, he really always argues a lot with the Rambam. He, there were, let's put it this way, like any study partner, right? Like any Chavuta. Like, yes. They always, the, the, the idea of a Chavuta is always, Start partner is always to argue, and the idea of the arguing more arguments the better the friends. Exactly. What's what the idea is because more arguments you have, more you do, you develop the subject. So the Ravat always yeah. That's why you and I are such good friends. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's why we're such good friends. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. Listen, that's the best. That's the best. Someone's to argue, but obviously arguing with trying to reach the goal. Yeah. And the Ravat actually asks the question. And he says, "But understand, first of all." That's good for, let's say, half of the Egyptians. But you needed someone to do it. Hashem decided it's going to happen, that Jews are going to be slaves in Egypt. So, okay, you could say that half of the Egyptians they, they had the free will to do it, to do it or not to do it. But someone had to do it somehow. Get the question? Meaning, yeah. Someone had to do it. And that's what? That's first. Second, what the Ravad says, Paro himself, he was the main guy here. I think he was for sure supposed to do it. Not even a question. I think all the half of the Egyptians had the choice, let's say. Okay. Paro? He for sure had to do it. So, how could you say that he has the fruit? That's the Rabat question. Think even other Rishonim asked the same question. I'm, 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 this I'm not positive. But that's the, so the question comes back. I think also something that's even deeper is that if our free will is able to be taken away, do we really have free will? Again? Sorry. So if our free will is able to be taken away, mm -hmm. do we really have free will? Because free will means that you always have free will, I guess. But if it's able to be taken away, then you don't technically have the free will then. I don't think it's a problem. Meaning when Hashem wants you to have the free will, you can have the free will. When Hashem doesn't want me. I think it goes according to actions. If Paro had to be punished, I think. Maybe I'm mistaken. But I'm saying maybe if, if Paro had to be punished on what he, whatever he did, right? We're going to look at his act now. What He's going to be punished about whatever he did in Mitzrayim, whatever he did in Egypt. So we're going to look at this point. About this. Is he, did, did he have the free will? He didn't have. This actually reminds me of something that I was learning with my father last week. I'm a rabbi who lived around 100 years ago by the name of Rabbi Yehuda Ashlag, or the Bada Sulam. Okay. The commentary he, he wrote. He actually lived in Yerushalayim. Okay. And uh, he wrote a commentary on the writings of the Ari, the Arizal, and he wrote a commentary on the Zohar. And one of the things that he talks about in his book, Talmud Asel Sfirot, is he takes this case that the Gemara looks at in Masechet Psachim, Efshar Vekamechaven, mm -hmm. that basically this guy has to get from his house to work, let's say. And on his route is this shop with Let's say it's like a, it's like a scent shop for Abu Dazara, for idol worship. And on the way, you're not allowed to benefit 
from anything that has to do with idol worship. But on the way, he has the scent shop of Avodazara, and he's going to benefit from the nice smells coming out of this incense shop. So what does he do in this situation? So the Gemara goes back and forth with all the different types of cases of if he doesn't have a choice and he does, and he's not really looking forward to it anyway, then everybody agrees he's patu, that he's, he's allowed to, yeah, it's permitted it's to go that way. And then if it's the opposite end of the spectrum that he has another way to go and he would have, and he's actually getting a little excited about being able to smell it, then he's for sure not allowed to go. Mm-hmm. But there's two cases in the middle. And I think Paro actually embodies one of the cases, which is he didn't have a choice, but it seems like he was actually enthusiastic about the job that he was given. Mm-hmm. And there's a machloket between Rava and Abaya, which is two sages in the times of the Talmud about whether or not that would be permitted. And I think that at least in Paul's case, in this case that we're talking about, it seems like God is taking the opinion that if somebody is put in a situation where they have to do something wrong, they have to sin, but since in their heart of hearts and their intention, they're enthusiastic about this opportunity to sin, then in that case, their intent counts. So this is almost like the exact opposite of Yehuda and Tamar. Yeah, so in Yudah and Tamau, obviously Yudah's intention was never to do anything wrong. Exactly. But here, it's, you know, the, there it was God orchestrated, but also exactly. God orchestrated, but Perot was so happy and excited exactly. about it that that's where it was. Right. He may not have had the free will, but he had the free will of how he was going to react yeah. and in his head, like whether he was going to be excited about causing suffering or whether he was doing it as an act of a soldier of Hashem or as a, an agent of Hashem. Right. Yes, exactly. Oh, that's yeah. not a separate I like it. <laughs> but yeah, but if you guys want to have another answer. Yes, uh, okay. of course. And, and the answer is the answer that's... Uh, but I'm sorry, he's always like to bring the, the answer <laughs> of the Rebbe, right? It gives us a very interesting answer. Uh, that is very... That we could take a little bit for life also. The answer that the Rebbe brings, interesting, we're learning it with another, with one of my classes actually this week with, with a few of the boys I'm learning with. It was a, The answer was this answer. The Rebbe says like this. Yes. God made a decree that, he, that the Jews have to suffer. It was a decree. Shem decided, and he actually tell, told it already to Abraham by this famous covenant that he had with Abraham. And he told him, it's going to be like this. Jews are going to be suffering for more than 80 years in Egypt. Well, because there's 400, but you have Rash explains those right away. That's 400, not actually 400. In Egypt, it's it from 430, they talk about also. Never heard this. I've yeah. never heard the 430. No, it says, uh, so, so, so it says that it was from the birth of Yitzhak until the, when they went out from Egypt. That's 400 years. Rashi makes, makes a mixed. The whole uh, yeah, yeah, Rashi, very interesting. Actually, I was looking at it yesterday. Someone asked me the question, what was learning with them? The same, uh, also the, a little bit the same idea. And he told, and he, so I told him, okay, listen, wait a minute. I want to go find the Rashi. And I actually find it interesting. The right way I find it. And Rashi explains to us the whole thing. Interesting. But the point is, we see in history, Jewish history, that you have two kinds of decree. Uh, one kind of decree is a decree that is not good. And one kind of, this, of decree is not a decree. It's the decision, let's put it this way, of good. So when it's good, Hashem never changed his mind. You could see in the history, uh, if you want to look up later about the, uh, at the end of the first Beit HaMikdash with the prophets there, Yomiyahu, and you could look at the whole story. When it's good, 
you have, you have no way to change it. Hashem will never change. Actually, you have a way to, to prove it. It says like this, if, how do you know what, if a Navi, if, how do you know if a Navi is a real Navi, right? Is if, it is, if he says something that's going to happen. Now, and it does, it does happen or it doesn't happen. But that's only in the case of if he says something good that's going to happen. If he says something good that's going to happen and it doesn't happen, you know that it's not a real Navi, like the Torah tells us. But if he tells us something that's not good and it doesn't happen, it's not a proof that's not true. Why? Because something good, Hashem will never regret. Something bad, Hashem could, yes, regret. Change his mind, kind of like this. And therefore, it's not a proof to tell us the And exactly that, the same in the Mitzrayim. Power, he had the decree. It was up to him to do it or not to do it. But the fact that he did it, the fact that he did it, it was his decision. He had the choice to push, saying the decision of Hashem, and not to do it. He had the kind, he had the choice to say, no, I'm not going to do that. We're going to push not to do it. And because he didn't push, he was excited with the idea. And he went a little bit to join, a little bit going back to what he's saying. The fact that he was excited with it and he said, I am going to do it. And he didn't say, I'm going to push not to do it. So therefore he was punished because he had a free will. Meaning it wasn't an easy, it wasn't an easy one. It wasn't like do it or not do it. It was do it or pushing not to do it. But you have, to, you have to choose not. So, for example, just to make sure we understand you, there's a midrash about the king of Bavel before he conquered, as he said, he had a, his servant shoot an arrow into four different directions. And all four of them turned around towards the direction of Yerushalayim. And his, the whole point was he didn't want to actually do it because he knew that the Bnei, Bnei Israel, the Jewish people, are God's chosen people. And he didn't want to conquer Jerusalem. But he knew that it was his job from God. And that's why he, that's only then did he agree to do it. And that's why he wasn't actually punished for conquering Jerusalem because he was being God's messenger and he did everything he could to avoid doing that. But Paron, he didn't even try. He did it with Simcha. Exactly. Yeah. So I have a question now. So we learned something very interesting today. How do we take what we learned today and we apply it into our everyday lives? Good. So really interesting that in the same, following this, it's actually helpful to understand a little bit more the concept that we just spoke about. You have the famous uh, line that says, if someone says, Echte ve'ashuv, Echte means I will make a sin, I will commit a sin. But it's not a problem because either way, right after I'm going to do the shuvah, I'm going to repent. It's not a problem. Yeah? So he's right. He says, let's eat something in a something. What does it say? And we don't give him the opportunity to do it. So someone that reads the first line, how we understand, right? Yeah. He doesn't have the opportunity to do the shuba. But you have another explanation that was again the first Arabi of Chabad in the famous book of the Tanya tells us. It's a little bit different. And we don't give him the opportunity. But if he wants, he could push into it. And so, but that, it means like this, I mean, sometimes we have some bad decrees or something bad that is meant to happen or the same idea, like someone that's trying to shuvah mm -hmm. and he finds it extremely hard. It's not that he doesn't have the truth. It's not that he doesn't have the possibility to do it, but he has to push for it. That's a little bit helpful to understand this concept. You have the, such, a, the, such a concept that sometimes you have something bad and you could push for it. And when you push for it, it will happen.
I think maybe another takeaway from what we discussed today is sometimes, well, a lot of times, so for example, the, like the question Anton asked about free will in general, do we have free will? And I think that a lot of times in life, maybe we feel like we're in a situation where God isn't giving us much of a choice. Like we, we want to do the right thing, but it feels like we don't have a choice. We have to do the wrong thing. So I think maybe in that situation, what we can learn from here is that the right thing to do in that situation is you do everything you can. And then if if God wants you to be in that situation, then must be that's actually God's will. And then you're not even actually doing anything wrong. You're actually doing God's will. I want to connect it to a little story. One of my favorite stories of were once put in prison back then in, in Russia, they used to put Jews in prison basically for no reason. So they were once sitting in prison and Rav starts crying to Rav Yonah says, what are you crying for? He says, we're stuck in this jail cell. And in the jail cell with them was this bucket, basically, that everybody went to the bathroom in. And it was coming time for Mincha. And you're not allowed to pray next to something that smells so bad. So he was sad that he wasn't, that he wasn't getting the opportunity to pray Mincha. So then Rabbi Yonah says to Rav Zusha, he says, don't you get it? We're fulfilling God's will by following the halacha of not praying next to something that smells bad. Wow. That's a nice this, story. So that's there's actually, there's actually a part that's two. There's actually a part two to this story is, so they're so happy with each other. They start dancing. The other guys in the cell, they aren't, they're not so religious, but they see other people dancing and being happy. Why not take the opportunity? Everybody starts dancing. The warden of the jail comes by. He says to one of the guards, what are these crazy people doing over here? Why they're in jail. What are they dancing for? says, I don't know, but if we think it has something to do with the bucket in the middle of the room. Oh. says, okay, take the bucket out right now. So they take the bucket out, wow. and then Rav Zushan and Melch are even more happy. They're able to daven Melch now. Wow. Because they found a way to, sh- to find God's will, even in the situation where it seemed like they were going to miss an opportunity to pray. And we have a mitzvah to pray three times a day. But it seemed like they were going to have a missed opportunity to pray. They found God's will in it. And through that, they revealed something even more beautiful in God's will. Wow. So they got the credit not only for the mitzvah of milchah, but also the emunah that they had was also this additional type of... A That's a very nice story. One of my favorite stories. Yeah. Good, huh? Sounds like... I can add why is one of the best, right? <laughs> yeah. Makes sense. I think also just the, if we are put in a position where we have to do something where maybe we're not comfortable with and we don't have another way around it for whatever reason... The fact that if we really don't want to do it, we know that we don't want to do it, we're outwardly expressing that we don't want to do it, and it still happens, despite doing our hishtadlut and trying our best not to do it, but really our best, it's a bit, we did Hashem's will, but we also did it in the way of Yehuda and Tamaf, rather than in the way of Parom and Sain. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, but even this, we have, I must say, we have to be a little bit, we have to. Even this sentence has to be said carefully. I'm going to say why. You have the famous idea of a shogeg, right? It's important to remember that even shogeg means that when someone does uh, navira, he does a sin uh, without, uh, he didn't want to do it and he did it, right? For example, someone that forgets that today is uh, Shabbat and he turns off the light. Fine, it happens, right? But from the other end, we say that it's tzaddik, real, real tzaddik, uh, according to the Tanya, even right? Even Beshogeg, he doesn't do it. Even that... Apparently, you're going to say, but it's not as uh, he forgot. He forgot that's the Shabbat. Still, as someone that that actually completely is a tzaddik, a righteous person, according to how the Admiral can explain it, that meaning he has zero avivot, zero, zero. So, and he will not even 
he will not even get to do something but, on, on a purpose. So, it will not happen to him. But if that does happen to him and then he says Shuva, doesn't that turn into a mitzvah in a oh, way? So yeah, so that's also a very, very good point, by the way. But still, it's called a Baal Shuva. Yeah, which is, <laughs> which, which personally I think is one of the reasons that it says, uh, because it's true that a true tzaddik will never even be shogeg sin. By the way, you have another, to this, you have another version to it. And yecholim la'amod. And yecholim la'amod, yeah. wow. Yeah, and I think that's because... What do you mean, yecholim? They cannot. Yeah, they're, they're not able to. And I think that's because they're never given the opportunity to do the mitzvah of tshuva. The one mitzvah a perfect tzaddik will never do in his lifetime. Exactly. Is tshuva, because he never did anything wrong. And more than that, inter- interesting that I heard you, and more than that, I said, that when you take a mitzvah, when you take a, sorry, you take an avera, you take a sin that you did, and you do it to tshuva, it's called teshuva me'ava, it's the highest level of tshuva. I feel like done that. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> even the bad things that you did are on, converted to mitzvah, so it's a mitzvah that doesn't... The bad any, things that you did on purpose become a mitzvot, but only if you do the tshuva uh, from love. Simcha. Like, with simcha, love. not from fear. And yes, love. from love. 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 100% love. Loves. love. So instead of, so the tzaddik could accomplish only 613, and the Bar Tshuva, I could accomplish even more than six hundred. Yeah, technically now the Tzaddik can't even accomplish six hundred and thirteen. We can't right. do the two hundred and twelve. No, but oh, we can't do the, uh, the the sacrifice for you know, an hour, an hour days here in Galut. Exactly, but the Bar Tshuva can technically do six hundred and thirteen. Right. That's actually what we say in that meet every day. We say please yeah. bring us that Mikdash. One of the reasons is like Several this, we're of just the good for Yeah, basically half of Shmona Esrei is about. Let, help us do tshuva and bring us back to the Beit Hamikdash. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Give it's us a, more opportunity to do more mitzvot. Yeah, you have them. You have uh, help me help you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, correct. It's, so you have Yerushalayim. We speak about the being of the Yerushalayim. Yeah. It's our goal. <laughs> so, Rabbi, it was very nice having you on. And we look forward maybe in a few months having you on for round two. I am perfectly fine and very happy to do it. <laughs> we loved having you on. Second guest, definitely a great time. And you, Rabbi Kegel, who was our first guest, you are part of the reason that inspires us to keep going and keep doing this podcast. Wow. I want to say a huge thank you to you. I feel a big <laughs> merit in this because it's very important to do such a things. Every opportunity you have to, to teach, we say, it says, Every if, when, a person that when he knows the Aleph, he teaches Aleph a bet. Yes. He knows it teaches a bet. That means whenever you have some, right? exactly whenever you have something to teach, you should not keep it for yourself. If a person says, "I prefer to not to teach it because I'm going to feel too much my ego," better to feel the ego. But at least you, <laughs> yeah, at least, at least, at, exactly. At least you can. Let's teach hope somebody. we inspire at least one Jew, one Jew, one mitzvah. This podcast, all the time that goes into it, will be worth it. Exactly. Beautiful. And, yeah. Well, thank you for joining us, Rabbi, and may we all be zochet to have Pashiach b'mehera b'amenu. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. May you come tomorrow. By the time this airs, hopefully Mashiach is here. No, he's going to come today. What do you say to me? <laughs> <laughs> all right, thank you very uh, much. My pleasure. My pleasure. Bye, everyone.